Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Romans six, um, Roman, Mark 16. I'm in my Tuesday Bible study with those guys. It, it you know, it, it, it has to be the medicine I'm on. That's what, that's what <laughs> it's like, but you've done that all year. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, as, you're, as you're turning there, uh, two things. One is there's a little thing in the end of verse 7. A uh, little note, and uh, I addressed that in the newsletter. So if you haven't read the newsletter, you can read the newsletter, and uh, that talks about it. And uh, we're just going to read through verse 8 uh, today in Mark chapter uh, 16. And uh, also, as we're, we're talking about Christmas and Easter and all these things kind of rolled into one, the resurrection of Jesus, I, I thought of a verse this morning. It is from Hebrews chapter 2, and it's talking about the incarnation leading to the crucifixion, leading to the resurrection. So we read in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago, that through death he might destroy, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So we're talking in some ways about the Christmas, Christmas and the cross, the incarnation, the resurrection, and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. So if you're willing to enable in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And the other gospel accounts say that this was an angel, actually. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thus since the reading of God's word, Every word of it is true, and he's given it to us because he loves us. Let me pray and ask him to bless us as we study it this morning. I think a lot of us in here who have read this passage and the other gospel accounts uh, wish that we had been there to actually see these things with our own eyes, to hear the voice of Jesus, to see his resurrection body, and to have full assurance that these things are true in the world uh, but we weren't there. We are 2,000 years removed. And so we pray this morning that you would do something amazing. That you would enable us by faith to put ourselves in their shoes. And to see the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and its meaning for our lives today. 
Would you bless us? Would you pour out your spirit? Would you enable us to see? And Lord, I'm not even aware of how holy the things are that I'm handling this morning. I know they're weighty. I know that they're important. But I don't grasp how important they are. And so I pray that you would communicate these things in their true importance, their true weightiness and value, that the people here would be built up in their faith or maybe even brought to faith today. Would you bless us? And would you be with us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, please. I, uh, I love the way that God, Mark's gospel ends here. The women hear the announcement of Jesus' resurrection, but they don't yet see Jesus. And uh, that's the way that it would have been for Mark's original audience in Rome hearing these things, is they weren't there. They're just hearing word about these things. They had not yet seen a resurrected Jesus. And for us, 2,000 years removed from this in another part of the world, it's the same for us. We hear the message, but none of us has had the privilege yet of seeing the resurrected Jesus. Yet it's still true. I also love the way it ends because there's a direct challenge to everything that they thought they knew their whole lives. I mean, if Jesus was simply as they thought he was a rabbi or a teacher or a prophet, then they had a grid for that. Uh, they knew what happened when people died. All the prophets, all the rabbis, uh, all the teachers who ever lived died, and they stayed dead. And if Jesus was a king, well, they had a grid for that. When kings die, their reign ends. But with Jesus coming back from the dead, well, it challenged their expectations and assumptions about him and about what they thought the world was really like, and they had to rethink everything. If this is what Jesus is like, I have to rethink the past three years with him. I have to rethink what was going on with the crucifixion. I have to rethink coming this morning to prepare his body for burial with this way. I have to rethink everything. And, and it's not just true for them. It's true for us. If Jesus is really resurrected, it changes everything for us. So I was reading this week and doing some study for the passage, and I came across a a Christian scholar who was talking to a secular friend, and uh, they talked about, you know, high and lofty matters. And at one point, the Christian asked his secular friend, he said, what is the bottom line when it comes to Christianity? In other words, what's, what's the big thing about Christianity that makes it unique? And his friend rightfully said this. He said, uh, if the resurrection is true, it, that's easy. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the central thing in Christianity. But then he did, he did not stop there. The secular friend, probably an atheist, said this. He said, if the resurrection is true, then so are a number of other things. There's a God. Jesus is that God. The Bible is true. Heaven and hell are real. And Jesus makes the difference whether you go to one or to the other, which is a great sermon outline. <laughs> and it's not the one we're using this morning. So... Go back and listen to that, because those five things are just like, wow, this guy saw it. He understood that this changes everything. He recognized that if Jesus' resurrection is true, uh, that it's uh, not merely a historical act, uh, but something that is cosmic. It changes everything for all of us. It changes all of our modern assumptions about the world, and, and it doesn't just challenge them. I want to convince you and show you for a little bit here that it actually brings healing for us in the modern world. And uh, I saw a video that helped me kind of put this in, into perspective for me. There was a video 
that I saw online, and maybe some of you have seen it. I think it was from the space station six years ago or so. And it's a group of astro astronauts in one of the larger rooms where they can actually get into the room and spin and twirl in the weightlessness and everything. And there's this one moment where one of the astronauts positions his friend in the middle of the room. So there's no momentum. He's not moving right or left, up or down. He's just solidly stuck in the middle. And he starts doing some acrobatics and starts spinning there in space and realizes after a little bit he's stuck. I don't know if, you realize, if you've watched videos of the space station, is they always grab handholds as they're going through the spin. They'll pull themselves from one, get the momentum, and go to the other. This guy had no momentum, and he had nothing to hold on to. So he's trying everything, like jerking his body and trying to get over to the wall and using, what is it, Newton's laws of physics, and he's trying to, like, pro propel himself along. And eventually, he makes it, the, like, one foot and just stretches out and grabs hold of this handhold that's right there. And I thought that is a great picture of what it's like to be in our culture right now. Uh, because what we're all looking for is, is a, is a handhold. God made us to put our feet on the firm ground of his truth and his righteousness. He made us to put our feet on the firm ground so we would have meaning and purpose and significance and truth and all the things that we need. And what we've looked at in, in the history of the world is when people reject that, they don't then float in, around. They're looking for a handhold. And for some cultures, and you know this, they'll take hold of something like family or race. And when you take hold of something like family or race to give yourself some stability, my purpose, my meaning, my identity are found here, that means that anybody who's not holding on to your handhold becomes a threat to you. They're less than you. That's the way we operate. Because my identity, my race, my culture, my whatever, this is the most significant thing there is. And so we as a culture have done something a little bit different. As we said, we get our identity, meaning, purpose, significance from freedom, not holding on to any handhold, which is its own form of a handhold, right? But what's, what's interesting about this is you think back to the astronaut who's floating there in the center He's completely free, but he's absolutely stuck because he doesn't have a handhold. God created us to have not just a handhold, but to have our feet firmly on the world that he's made, with the truth that he's made, with the purpose and meaning and significance, the identity that he's given to us. And we don't invent these things for ourselves, but they're given to us. And so we enter into the world knowing this is who I am and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And as we're looking uh, this morning at, the, at the, the resurrection of Jesus, what we're seeing is the resurrection gives us a proper understanding of who we are, uh, what our purpose and significance is, where we're going. And we're going to talk about these things in just a little bit. But before we get there, we need to deal with a, a kind of a, something that's central for us in our culture, and that is is did the, did the resurrection really happen? Because if the resurrection really happened in time and space history, that does change everything. So the historicity of the resurrection. In Mark chapter 16, verse 6, we, we just read it. Uh, it says this, The angel said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So first things first, we believe that the, resurre the resurrection of Jesus really happened in the real world 
in real time and space history. It was, it was a unique event, but it was a real event nonetheless. Now, I know that uh, there are lots of reasons people give for the resurrection not being real, you know, but usually it comes down to the fact that people have assumptions about the way the world operates where that couldn't be real. But our whole point is, you're right, it never happens, except it happened one time to Jesus. And that changes everything that we think about the world. But some people get around that by saying, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is not unique. There are lots of resurrection stories in the ancient world. Have you heard that before? That there are lots of ancient resurrection stories? The History Channel had an article that says there are six resurrection stories from the ancient world just like Jesus. So I decided I'm going to read those and see how they're like Jesus. And guess what? They're nothing like Jesus' resurrection. And, and this is part of what's going on. And as, as you read through, there are fertility goddesses. You know, the, you know the story is the fertility goddess dies and she goes down to Hades during the winter months and then she comes back during the spring. And that's what it, that explains how all the crops are produced. That's just a myth. It's not a real life story in the real world. It's a myth. There's another story that I read about a, a young woman who tricks the god of death. That's, an, a, that's a Hindu story. She tricks the god of death. Now, here's the reality of that is there were no witnesses to this. It's just a story. It's just a myth. There are no witnesses. Um, there's a young man. This is a Buddhist story. Uh, a young man claimed one time to have an encounter with a dead prophet along a road. Nobody saw it except for the young man. They, he went, and they exhumed the body of this dead prophet, and they found, oh, there's some similarities here. And everybody said, oh, it must have happened because you saw this on the road. And he, there's no other witness to it, just this one young man who said he saw this story. So when you start looking at it, it's nothing like this resurrection story. Because as we look through the story of Jesus, the four Gospels, the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians, it says that with Jesus there were numerous real-world, nameable people, witnesses that you could go to and say, did you see this? Absolutely, we saw this. There, at one point in, the, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says there were 500 people at the same time who saw Jesus. So numerous real-world, nameable people on multiple occasions in various locations saw the resurrected Jesus. This fits all of the criteria of verification of a historical event. So that uh, one uh, writer said this. He said, raking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. It happened. And one of the, this is an interesting thing that we've kind of, we probably just glossed over this in the text. But when you read through it, who are the, who are the people who saw this? They're named people, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. These are three women. And now for us culturally, we don't, we would not balk at that at all. But for them in the first century, having women witnesses to what took place was a, a detriment because women were not considered reliable witnesses in the first century among Jewish men. So what that meant was when Mark is naming these three women and the other gospel writers do the same thing, that would be detrimental if you're inventing a story that you wanted to be widely circulated if you wanted it to be widely circulated, you would only have men as the witnesses during that time period. So what does that mean? It means this must have really happened. 
that in that day and age, they're saying just this is what happened. Jesus appeared to first to these women. They were the primary first witnesses to his resurrection, which lends credibility uh, to the claims of this being true. It really happened. But that's not where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to spend a little time talking about why this matters. How do we, uh, uh, what do we make of this? And so I'm going to give you, I have five points for you. And uh, we'll be here till Tuesday talking about these things. Okay. We should be okay. The meaning of the resurrection. Uh, five points. First one is this, reality. We know what reality is as, as a result of this. Uh, we know things we couldn't know otherwise because of this. So I want you to think about it this way. Is death is seen as a door into heaven. And I came across a blogger who said this. He said, don't waste your time trying to know what happens after death because you will only know when you die. Nobody knows what happens when we die. It's like it's, it's this door that's closed, and the only time it's open to you is when you die and you go through, and then you come back, right? And that makes sense because, uh, you know, we have these near-death experiences. I like reading about those and watching things about them online, but people say it's just your mind shutting down those kind of things. We're not sure those people really died. They're still in there somewhere. It's just a matter of them coming back. Um, so it's kind of like, okay, but Jesus was dead for three days and truly dead. And when he was resurrected, he didn't just come back in a healed body. He came back in a completely healed body that had gone through crucifixion and the scourging, skin hanging from his body, nails in his hands. He's completely healed three days later with upgrades, right? So this is different, different than simply being healed, right? So they knew something had happened with this person. And this, this really matters for us because we all know that when, when, when my mom died, I haven't had word from her since. And when my dad died, I haven't had word from him since. When people die, they stay dead. And so we don't know what's beyond that door. So here's a little illustration from you. Don't turn around. There's a room back there. It's a, a kitchen. It's got a refrigerator. It's got cabinets. It's got all the things that an industrial kitchen would have. But this morning, I went in and put something in that room. And none of you have been in that room. Um, so anybody want to take a guess what's in the room? Michael, you have a guess what's in the room? No, no guess. That's a, a Bible could be in there, yeah. yeah. How many of you believe him? <laughs> okay. Uh, Anthony, do you have any guess about what's in the room? Kitchen and cupboard? That, yes, but that was already there. I put something specifically in there. Yeah. My notebook. Have you been in there already? Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> How many of you think it was my notebook? <coughs> it's not. Um, yeah, it's hard to know because none of us have been in there. So, Taylor, you want to go and take a look for us and see what's in there? So, all of you right now are saying, well, I can't ask any of you in here, and you're like, I don't know what's behind that door. I've never been behind that door. I certainly haven't been behind that door this morning. I don't know what's there. Taylor, what's in there? A Christmas tree. A Christmas tree. Now, how many, of you, how many of you believe what Taylor just said? I do. Okay. How does he know what's behind there? He went there and saw it. He stepped behind the door. He saw it was there and came back. Okay, when we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he came back. 
And he's able to tell us what is beyond the door. In fact, it doesn't just tell us what's beyond the door. It tells us everything about what we need to know about life. So Jesus is, it's not simply we believe him when he talks about what happens when we die. We believe him about everything because he was right about everything. This is in John chapter 2, 18 to 19. The Jews are, are, Jesus is performing miracles. He's teaching things. They don't like it. And so they ask the question, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, meaning his body. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Right? That's his proof to them, is I'm doing all of these things. I am who I say I am because I am going to be resurrected. In uh, chapter 16, verse 7, we see this with the angel's words. He says, go to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Everything that Jesus said is trustworthy. So the question, we're not just simply dealing with reality. We're dealing with how do we know? How do we know? We know because we have one who's gone behind the door and come back. We have one with the authority to do so. We have one who loves us, and we have one who's only going to tell us the truth about what he's seen. So we can trust him. How do we know? Because of Jesus. Next one, uh, not just how we know, but who we trust. And in this, we see that Jesus was vindicated by the Father. So Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. The resurrection proves his identity. God the Father vindicated him. So when we look at history, particularly the history of Judaism, Abraham died and King David died and they stayed dead. They didn't come back. So the kings and the prophets of the Old Testament, they all stayed dead. Herod and Pontius Pilate died and they stayed dead. Everyone who ever tried to give Jesus a black eye is still dead. Our, the great leaders of the religious world are still dead. Gandhi is still dead. Muhammad is still dead. The great leaders of the United States, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, they're still dead. Only Jesus came back. Uh, he was vindicated. We know this. Dead people don't come back. And the reason is, is because of what death is all about, which we'll talk about in just a second. In Acts chapter 17, it says that the resurrection is God's proof that Jesus is on the throne of heaven. So Jesus is the only one vindicated by God the Father. And God is saying, this is my son. He's of a different category than everybody else. He alone has no sin. He alone did not deserve to die. He alone deserves to sit on the throne of heaven. And I'm giving proof of this by bringing him back from the dead because by his death, he won a great victory on behalf of his people. And, and in winning that great victory on behalf of his people, he deserves a kingdom in which he rules over them. He's the king above everyone and everything. And we're called to trust him even above ourselves. Um, got a quote about that. Uh, it's the last quote on there, Ben, if you're paying attention back there. Um, one of the last ones is from Tim Keller under point number three. I'm just, I'm shuffling the deck a little. Okay, so Tim Keller said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, he's who he claims to be. Okay, third, uh, so how we know who we trust and who we are. 
Justification. This is in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. I love that image. Uh, we in the United States incarcerate people who are guilty. And so the person begins their prison sentence, and when they've paid their debt to society, that's when they emerge again from prison or from the, uh, the penal system, right? So that's when they're able to come out. So when we begin to look at what Jesus is doing on the cross, it's very similar. On the cross, he died for our sins, and his resurrection proves that our sins are really paid for. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the reason that Jesus died was not for his sin, but for our sin. And so by his resurrection, he's showing that it's truly paid. So what does that mean? How does that tell us who we are? One, you matter to God. That's something big you need to know about yourself. You matter to God. One is he made you in his image. And that means that you have inherent dignity from the time you are conceived until the time you die. Every single person does. We don't earn this. We don't secure it. We don't gain it for ourselves. We don't achieve it. Instead, we receive it from the time we're born. I matter because I'm important to God. I'm made in his image, and he made me to commune with him. The second thing we see that's coming right out of this is we're broken and we're fallen and we're flawed. We have sins. We make mistakes. We do this all the time. We hurt the people we most love and we regret the things we do, but then we do it all over again the next day. We see our sin and our brokenness. We, we need a Savior. And then the third is we're loved and cherished so much by God that he sent a Redeemer to die for us, to redeem us from the grave, to justify us and declare that we are right with him forever. I know who I am. I'm made in God's image. I matter. And even though I've, I'm broken and I'm fallen and I've sinned, I still matter. So he sent his son to die for me and now I'm fully justified and my sin will never be held against me. God sent his son to pay for us in our sin. Now, I want you to just think about this for a moment. We talked about our handholds earlier, right? Culture, in, every culture looks for some sort of handhold. Right now, it's freedom in the United States, but one of those also in the United States is power. We look for power as a handhold. And if I have power, that gives me leverage over you so I can get the things that I want. I want power. That's what we're looking for in the next election is we want power to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. But what if your handhold is not power? What if your handhold is not uh, your race or anything about your nationality, anything along those lines? What if your handhold is not simply that I'm holding onto this, but God in his grace has taken hold of me. That's what keeps me stable. And he has put my feet on solid ground in Jesus. And it's by grace. I'm not better than anybody. They have dignity. They have value. And I have received grace, and I want to show the same grace to them and show them this Savior. That changes the way you live, doesn't it? It's not about my power. It's not about my, my righteousness compared to other people. I don't have any. I just have Jesus. I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to prove it to anybody. I just have it in Jesus. That's freeing. Fourth, we know, that's uh, how we know. Uh, I forget my points now. Where are my points? Y'all write, I wrote, you wrote them down. Reality, vindication, justice, and resurrection. There we go. So, okay. So, resurrection. We know how it ends. We know the end of the story. Romans 6, 5 for if we have been, that was really good. I like the way you did that. What's behind the door over there? 
<laughs> Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right? Jesus came back fully healed. Jesus came back with upgrades. And what he's saying is, we're going to come back fully healed with upgrades. This is from R.C. Sproul. He said, uh, basically, Jesus is the first off the assembly line. He said, the point of the resurrection, the Father raised Jesus by the power of the Spirit, not simply for his own vindication, but for us. He was the first to be raised in this manner, but he will not be the last. Everyone who is in Christ will share in this resurrected glory. This hope is at the very heart of the Christian faith. And what he's saying is what is coming is so good that it overwhelms everything that you're facing now. There is nothing so good that you experience right now that is not going to be completely eclipsed by what you'll experience then. And it means that there is nothing so hard and difficult that you're facing right now that it will not be like passing by an alleyway with, you know, with a rank smell and then passing by and quickly forgotten. Everything in this world will be like that rank smell, quickly forgotten as you go into beautiful and better things. It will be. Um, so what does it mean for you? We get so stuck right now in our culture thinking, this is my last best chance at happiness. If I don't get it with this, if I don't have it at this moment, I may never get it again. But what he's telling us is your last best chance at happiness is not last. It's the beginning of incredible happiness. And it's not the best what you're facing now because what's coming in Jesus is best. And it's not by chance. It is certain and it's sure. Your last best chance at happiness here is just gone in light of what's coming in the future. It's so beautiful. So this enables us not to be devastated by hard things because the best thing is always coming in the future with the resurrection. And then the last is, is how we overcome. There's a new life. There's a new powerful life. Romans 6, 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So think about somebody who is um, living only for themselves, and then they fall in love with somebody else, and that begins to change their life. Or think about it this way. I, uh, uh, I, I knew the campus pastor this happened to. There was a girl in his ministry who uh, announced at a Bible study with a group of friends that she had been diagnosed with cancer. And everybody went into high gear to take care of her. So they were sitting with her around the clock, praying with her, praying for her. Uh, they would take care of her, bring her soup, and she was in bed, and, you know, she was, uh, they would take notes in class and bring it to her. And so finally, the, you know, their whole campus community is dealing with this. And the campus pastor decided, we've got to get more help here because my students are getting tired. This is really difficult. I'm going to call her parents and figure out how do we best handle this. So he called the parents and said, hey, I'm calling about so-and-so. And they said, oh, my goodness, is anything wrong? He said, well... You know, she's been diagnosed with cancer. We're wondering how to help her. And they said, she's been what? She's been diagnosed with cancer. And what happened was, in the Bible study, she made it up. She told a lie to everybody about what had happened to her. 
And so everybody all of a sudden is just devastated by what this lie, and we've been giving ourselves to you, and we've been losing sleep, and we've been taking care of you, and what in the world is going on with this? And so all of a sudden, people that were right there with her began to withdraw from her. And her parents came and, I think, came and got her and took her home for the rest of the semester. And what was fascinating about the story as he was relating it is after the fact, after the fact, after this all came out and she, was, she realized everybody's angry with me, everybody hates me, I don't think people can ever forgive me, that's when she met Jesus. It was in the midst of all of this. And there was a, came across a Tozer quote. He foresaw this about God. He said, he foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless, he fixed his heart upon me. And what happened for her at this point, she, she apologized, she confessed, she repented, she began to try to make it right to the people that she had wronged in this way. And what had happened was she experienced a real heart change in the midst of this. Right? There's still sin in her life, but there, overall there was this big core change at the bottom of her life that changed the way that she started to live. And it all had to do with the fact that she realized this God is never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. And he will forgive me for the things that other people can't forgive because he loves me. And so what we see as we come through this is there's a break with the old. As something new begins to grow within you, a truth uh, takes seed, new affections, new desires, a new person enters into your life and begins to bring transformation. I saw this in a weird way when Rebecca and I were engaged, and I was living in, uh, I was in seminary, and uh, she was living back in Asheville at this point, and uh, if you, some of you are aware of this, is I'm terrible at returning emails, um, I'm terrible at uh, like texting people back, I'm like, oh, they texted me, okay, just put it in my pocket, I love you, but I've just been terrible. I've always been terrible. And I don't ever write handwritten notes because none of you could read it. And uh, I look like I should be in romper room with my handwriting. I'm Stephen writing this. You know, I just can't do it. I'm just terrible, illegible completely. Rebecca knows this. And so when I was in seminary, uh, I would write her a letter like every two days, a long letter just stream of consciousness, what I'm doing, what I'm learning, everything, writing to her, not because of me, but because of her. There was a love that was there that was transforming what I was doing at that point. And when we come into this passage, he's saying that the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf changes our hearts, changes our lives, plants seeds in us that begin to grow and slowly push out the old desires push out the old sin, push out the old things uh, that grip us and hold on to us. So the joy of the Lord begins to ground our life and begins to produce a new life and different kinds of choices. Okay, so how do we begin to respond to this? Well, this new set of affections, and the way that we do it, uh, the way that we begin to grow this way is to, to fix our eyes continually and fully on this Jesus who is resurrected not to take our eyes off of him, because we forget very easily. Um, but what if, what if there was a way for you to keep your eyes on him continually? What if there was a way so I could see him all the time? We have a friend, Paul Dogsat, for a, a friend, a teacher at the school a while back, and he had a little app on his phone where he could, you know, they, this is 
This was kind of new for us. We don't have this kind of thing. Where there's a camera in his house. It was a doggy cam. And so he could turn it on at any time and see how his five dogs were dismantling his living room. So he would, he would look and kind of watch. And I think it even had a speaker where he could say, okay, you guys stop that right now. <laughs> Freaking out your dogs just for fun. What if you had something like that? Where you could look and see and say, I see where I'm going. And every time you looked, it was a beautiful scene of the architecture of heaven. It was a beautiful scene of the people that were there. And it was Jesus there amongst them. What would that do if you could actually see that with your own eyes? It probably would transform you. I can see that. Well, what we have in Scripture is as close as we're going to get right now. Right? When we finish here, I want you to go and look in the room and see the Christmas tree. Right? Thus far, you've only heard about it. You haven't seen it yet. It is glorious. <laughs> but I want you to go and look in there as a reminder that right now you can't see past the door. But we have one who has gone to the other side and he's come back and he's talking this Taylor. Y'all are laughing at this Taylor. <laughs> we have one who's seen the glorious Christmas tree and we have one. We have one who is the glory of Christmas and the glory of the resurrection who has gone before us and he promises that he's going to build a house, a place for us, which is amazing. Johnny Erickson taught, I like to read and hear from people who have struggled to live out faith in the midst of very difficult circumstances. When she was, I think, 16, she was in a diving accident and broke her neck. And she's lived for 50 plus years as a quadriplegic. And this is what she says. And coming from her, this means so much. She said, the best we can hope for in this life is a not whole peek at the shining realities ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to, what, to that which waits over the horizon or behind the door. We have joy and happiness waiting. We're whole, happy, and healed. In this passage, the resurrection of Jesus tells us how we know, who to listen to, who we are, how it ends, and how we can grow and change and overcome those obstacles in our lives through the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that today you would give us a not whole peak, that we would see the glory of what you have in store, the glory of your promises. Uh, we have Jesus' testimony. We have your Holy Spirit. We have the scriptures. We have your promises. And we pray that you would take all of these things, that they would not just be outside of us, or they might just not be in our imagination or in our knowledge, but that you would move them to our hearts, that we would love what's in store, that it would transform us and the way that we live that we would have full confidence in you, uh, full hope and confidence in the future and what you're going to accomplish. And then in our lives right now, it produced transformation. Would you bless us and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.